I'll be reading from Revelation uh, chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. This is the word of the Lord. This is the uh, last of the series uh, on the Church of Jesus Christ, the images of the church. And um, I wanted to mention something about the images of the church that we've encountered so far. I have a book that I uh, used as a reference and returned to a couple of different times uh, on images of the church. And the first chapter in the book, entitled Images of the Church, is titled Minor Images. And one of the minor images of the church is bride, at least according to this author. And I looked at it and thought to myself, hmm, minor? Maybe it's not there and repeated as often, but it does seem like a major theme. But we can differ as it relates to that. Is it major or it's minor? I have a feeling that everyone would agree with this statement. Whether it's a major or a minor image, it's definitely the most beautiful image. Wouldn't you say, the bride of Christ? That just bespeaks beauty. It bespeaks an exquisite beauty that you don't see every day. Whenever I was uh, preparing for this sermon, I took an opportunity to actually look through my son's wedding album. Um, David and Janelle were married here in the sanctuary and of course, all the pictures are, are beautiful, and it's here, and, and I was able to perform that wedding ceremony, and it was, it's very meaningful to look at that album. But I remember uh, seeing something for the first time. You see, when I was performing the wedding ceremony, I was up here or down there, standing next to my son as his bride walked in. And I couldn't really see his face. I mean, I could turn and look, but we were all looking at Janelle. She's the bride. So I couldn't really tell what his face was saying. I'm sure he smiled, but the photographer captured a, pitch, a picture, an image of my son. And for those of you who don't know my son like I do, you wouldn't know what the image meant. But for me, it said something. I knew that face. The face he had was, I've got to control myself 
so I don't cry. That was the image on his face. I've seen it many times before. He was so overcome with delight to see his bride come down the aisle, I think he was worried about crying. He wanted to look like he was happy, but he didn't want to cry. When you think of all the images of a bride and apply them to the church, and Christ being the husband of that bride church, it can go astray. Let's begin. Will you be a little pedantic with me? Let me start out this way. What's the purpose of an image? What is it? Well, I'd like to suggest that the purpose of an image is to create a picture that a propositional statement cannot communicate right? A propositional truth statement. Something that may be absolutely accurate, perfectly true, worthy of affirmation, but the image, the image communicates something that goes beyond mere language. When I say bride, do you focus on the word bride? The etymology of the word? Do you think, bride, that's true? No, probably. When I say bride, you think of a person. You probably think of a white gown. You probably think of beauty. You probably think of joy. You probably think of smiles all around. That's what you think of. So images are used for that reason, right? They take us beyond propositional language, and they open up for us vistas that enhance the truth itself. Sometimes I think of the Apostle Paul as a propositional guy. He writes down stuff that's kind of like argument, but I wonder if you would say the same thing that I do, that his most famous passage that he ever penned is 1 Corinthians 13, the passage on love. If you look back at that passage, it is full of images. It's as though Paul has been speaking about the truth concerning the gospel, and then he breaks into poetry, and he uses all kinds of poetic images to communicate the truth of divine love. Poetry and songs take us to those places. So the purpose of images, this one included, is to allow us to understand something a pure proposition cannot. That's the purpose of an image. But what's the problem with an image? Actually, there's a lot of problems with images. One problem with an image is that an image can be exaggerated, exceedingly exaggerated, until it takes us in a way away from the truth itself. So each week, Dan Waugh gets this image together for me. And he doesn't do it on his own. Whatever the image is, he tries to capture it. He searches all over the place for pictures that work. And frequently he'll come to me and he'll say, what about this one, Bob? Does this work? Does this work? What are you trying to communicate? This week, you know what our conversation was about? Well, we want to be careful with this bride thing. 
We don't want it to be overly romanticized, right? You know what Dan and I decided? It's, it's in the image. What we decided is that we didn't want a couple that was face-to-face or nose-to-nose, like in some sort of kiss. We decided we didn't want couples' faces at all. We didn't want the face of the bride or the face of the groom. We decided that we wanted the image to be out there. See, there's a, a simple beauty to that image. You don't see the face. It's not as though they're embraced and making some sort of passionate love. They're just united together as one. Does anything say more about united together as one than a picture like that? So we chose that image. Why? Well, there's a good reason for that. Because sometimes we can take the image of a bride and Christ and make it sappy and romantic in a way it should not be. As beautiful as the image is, we can go wrong with it. As a matter of fact, sometimes uh, we can use it in such a way that it creates an inaccuracy, even though it's a beautiful image. There's a second reason uh, that images are a problem. Number one, they can be exaggerated. Number two, some images, depending on who you are, can communicate a negative connotation. Right? So the image of the fatherhood of God, beautiful image, one I do not want to release, it creates sometimes negative emotions for people who had an abusive father. Imagine if you had an abusive father, perhaps a father who even abused you in the worst kinds of ways. And then connect that image to God, you can see how it would be problematic. Or even the image of a bride. Suppose you're not married. The image may have a little bit of a a gut-wrenching feeling for you. Or maybe the image of a bride communicates to you that everyone who is a woman ought inevitably to be a bride someday. That in and of itself is problematic. Or maybe you're like me. And the image of me being the bride of Christ? Kind of strange. Never wanted to be a bride. Right? So you can see that images have their problems and they can mess things up. They can also be absolutely used for inaccurate descriptions. For instance, when we talk about marriage and a bride, it is virtually impossible not to think about sexuality. Right? But yet, The Scripture uses the image of a bride. Do you think the Scripture wants us to go to sexual images when we think of Jesus Christ as our husband? Absolutely not. We could do strange things with that. And there's people in the church who have. As a matter of fact, I heard one rather popular evangelist 
do something with the image of a bride that I thought was really quite inaccurate. You may have heard it before. That you, Fred, Jill, you individually are the bride of Christ. You know nowhere in the scripture does it say that? Nowhere. What the scripture does say is that the church, the collective group of people called the people of God, is the bride of Christ. Given personalization of everything in our culture, we could use the image and mess it up. This same evangelist actually said, from up front, with thousands of people listening, in his appeal for people to come forward and receive Christ, I want you to march down that aisle and be married to your brown eyed Jewish husband. Now look, had I been an unbeliever and he was giving me such an invitation, I would have said, this is way too weird for me. I'm out of here. Okay? So my suggestion is that we could take images, all good, and really mess them up and communicate things that are really quite inaccurate. Now, I know this is a little much, but you're doing well hanging in here with me, all preliminary. There's some images that have been taken over by our culture, and they don't have as much meaning as they used to. I see crosses hanging around people's necks who don't have the faintest idea about what it means to follow Jesus. Or tattooed on their arm or their back. And as a matter of fact, for many centuries, people have said, should we use the image of the cross? All it means is awful suffering and death. It's ugly. It's nasty. Isn't, isn't that cross, that image, a stumbling block? Well, there they're right. It is. Or it ought to be. So if it's a stumbling block, why is it up there? You know, there's huge churches, huge mega churches, who have very deliberately taking, taken every religious symbol out of their worship service. Removing things like the cross. It will never be there. Whenever I hear that, I wonder to myself, why is it we have to be so extreme? If an image can be improperly used, can it be properly applied? And if it's improperly used by us or by others, does that mean we need to discard it? I think not. As a matter of fact, the words of Paul reverberate in my ears. This whole thing called the gospel is foolishness. This whole thing called the cross is a stumbling block. And I will repeat, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, saved by the death of Christ on the cross. So my friends, there are some images, in spite of their problems, 
that we cannot release. Now, that wasn't even the sermon. Here's the sermon. It'll be quick and really simple. I will extract from the image of a bride and Christ the husband and the church three things. The first is love. The second is fidelity. And the third is culmination. And I use these words as a description of three different passages. Listen to these words from Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present to her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Frequently we look at Ephesians 5 and we talk about husbands and wives, and we should. But you know that's not the main point of Ephesians chapter 5? The main point of Ephesians chapter 5 is Christ and His church. Just the way Christ, Paul says, loved His church, so husbands ought to love their wives. Just as Christ was absolutely self-sacrificing and gave it all, so a husband ought to be self-sacrificing and give it all on behalf of his wife. Just as Christ was one with his church, so the husband ought to be one with his wife. That's the definition of love. That is, is being, really being communicated in the bride of Christ. The church is loved in the most self-sacrificing, beautiful way that Paul could not imagine an image better than husband and wife to communicate it. The second word is fidelity. This comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul kind of breaks loose here and he actually apologizes almost. He says, I I'm going to be a little bit foolish here because he's talking about competition among other, among other apostles and things like that. He said, I'm going to be a little foolish here. So my language might seem extreme, but I have a point. And here's what Paul said. I'm jealous for you. Remember, he's talking to the church at Corinth. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ. You see, the image, Paul is seeing himself as the father of this church. And fathers gave their brides to a husband. And he says, I promise you to one husband, to Christ, so that, you might present, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid, says Paul, just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may be, somehow, may be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. If someone preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if someone, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel, you're putting up with it too easily. What does all that mean? 
Paul is basically saying this. I presented to you Christ and him crucified as the only way of redemption for you and for the world. And you need to be careful that you don't stray from that central message just like a husband might stray from his wife or a wife from his husband. Don't walk away from your first love. I want you to be focused, Corinthians. It is Christ and him crucified, the central message that I brought. And if you hear anything else, even if it doesn't sound like a pure contradiction, even if it's more like Jesus and a little bit of this, Jesus is great, but I need something else. Don't, says Paul. You need nothing else. It's Christ and him crucified. That's it. In Galatians at one point, he says, if anybody preaches another gospel than the gospel I've preached to you, which is Christ and him crucified, let him be accursed. Let the messenger go to hell. That's what he meant. He's talking about fidelity to Jesus Christ. Just like a husband and wife are absolutely committed to one another. You're his bride, Paul says, and he's your husband. You know, there's all kinds of forms of infidelity. And to take it of religion, one form of infidelity is idolatry. We follow Christ, but we're actually kneeling down to another idol. Another form of uh, infidelity is error. That's why it's so important to understand exactly what the Scriptures say and what they mean. That's why it's so important and I know it sounds boring to so many people nowadays. It's so important to get your doctrine right. It's so important to understand exactly what the Word of God says. Because if you don't, you're in error. And if you don't, like Paul said, you're too easily just adopting things that are not true. I want you to be absolutely faithful to one husband, Corinthians. I don't want you to drift into error. You know, among other things, pure fidelity in marriage or in the church means something that is not widely received by our culture nowadays. It's called exclusivity. It's called Christ and Christ alone. Paul's telling the Corinthians, you better not drift. Don't fall into idolatry or harlotry or anything else. It's Christ and Christ alone. The third word is culmination. And that comes from the passage that was read just a few moments ago. <laughs> then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from among the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. 
and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and he himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the older order of things has passed away. And he was seated on the throne and said, I am making everything new. And then he said, down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. You know, we are the people of God, those of us who follow Jesus Christ. And we collectively are his bride. But not completely. There's always this already not yet tension in the scripture. You're already sanctified, declared holy, but you know you're not holy. You've already received eternal life, but you know you're going to die. You've already inherited peace, but you know sometimes you don't have peace. You've already, the list goes on, you've already but not yet. Why the not yet? Because the not yet is there because you have not been completely, fully, eternally united with Christ. And it won't happen in this life. It happens in the life to come. Whether before Christ comes and makes all things new or after he comes to make all things new. When he comes to make all things new, he will be their God. Oh, he already was, but he will be their God. And they will be his people. Oh, they already are, but they will be his people. In a complete and a final way. Maybe it seems a little sappy. But the best image I have is this. Right now, it's like the church is engaged to Christ. Then, the culmination of it all, they will be one. When I was a, a young man, and, and I was way too young, and so was my bride, we got married. But for several years leading up to that event, we wanted to be with each other all the time. And we never lived together. I know a lot of people do now, but we did not. And whenever we would be together for a protracted period of time, we didn't want it to end. We always had to say goodbye. She went to her home, and I went to mine. And among other things, marriage for us meant we didn't have to say goodbye anymore. We were together. We were one. We never had to part. We never had to go to another home. Our home was together now. That's the image that helps me to understand this passage in the book of Revelation. There's coming a day where you will be fully united with your husband, my friends, Christ Jesus, your Lord. So what is the message for the church in all of this? 
The message for the church is, is very simple. The first thing is this. His love is unconditional for us. You remember the story of Hosea? And by the way, Israel was called the bride of Christ as well, the bride of God as well. You may remember the story of Hosea. Hosea is given a charge to go after a woman who is his wife, who has been unfaithful to him over and over and over again and has slept with multiple men all over the place. And he says, I want you to pursue her even though she's unfaithful to you and you have the right to divorce her. I don't want you to do it, Hosea. I want you never to give up on her. I want you to follow her to the ends of the earth. I want you to do whatever it is to woo her back to your home and make her your one true love. Why do I want you to do this, Hosea? It's not about you and her. It's about an image I'm trying to create. I'm trying to create an image for Israel that the husband of Israel is God, Jehovah, and he pursues them even when they're full of it. Even when they run away. Even when they curse God. Even when they don't want to be a part of this thing called the divine community of faith. I want you to keep pursuing your wife because Israel is pursued by God that way. Or to put it another way, my friends, if God didn't pursue us, it'd be over. We're too stupid and sinful. And God says, I will not let your stupidity and your sinfulness be a block to my love. I will love you unconditionally. Somebody's going to have to advance that slide. (laughs) I'm never going to let you go. (laughs) The second thing is that his faithfulness is unending. When we are not faithful... He is faithful. You know, when image immediately came to mind as I was thinking about this, well, there's a lot of them you could think of. But in Scripture, the one that came to mind was Peter. Peter was bloviating, and he was talking about how he would never leave Jesus. He would never forsake him, even though others did. And, of course, he forsook him, and he denied that he knew him three times in the face of a young servant girl that he should not have feared. And the third time, when he denied he ever knew him, the rooster crowed, just like Jesus said it would. And it predicted by the time that rooster crows, Peter, you will have denied me three times. One of the gospel passages paints a picture, an image. It's like this. Peter standing around the fire warming himself. Cursing that he did not know Jesus. Hearing the rooster crow. And then turning. And Jesus was looking at him. Imagine that. I don't know him, he said through curses. And Jesus was looking at him. What did Peter do? He went out, the text says, And he wept bitterly. And what did Peter do after that? He said because of that unconditional love, that look from Jesus that says, you may have deserted me, but I've not deserted you. Because of that, I am going to give my life unconditionally to you. And I will follow you even to death. 
because your love is so deep and so high and so long, I can't help but follow you. Church, we're loved unconditionally. And the only way to be worthy of that love is to love him unconditionally. Third and final thing that's a message from the church is this. Someday we'll be united. It's coming. Someday the real marriage supper of the Lamb will take place. And you'll never feel as though you're alone. You'll, you'll never wonder whether Jesus is with you and the harsh circumstance of life in your tears, in the death of another, because all of that will be gone because Jesus will be present. Eternal life will be yours. And your heart, which even right now, even right now, is restless, will find its rest completely in Jesus Christ. There's so many beautiful things in this world, There's so much to love. There's so much reflected beauty that comes from God himself. But all of it, just a taste on the tip of the tongue compared to what will be. And in them, themselves, these things, they'll never satisfy. Eventually, he'll make everything new. I want to end with um, one of my favorite hymns. We didn't sing it this morning, and we're not going to, because I want to quote it. Church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She, you, are his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride, with his own love, he bought her. Before her life, he died. Elect from every nation. Isn't that incredible? Elect from every nation. For one or all the earth, her charter of salvation. One Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and with one hope she presses with every strength endued. Sometimes I can't hardly believe that I with you am the bride of Christ. Though with a scornful wonder, men see her sore, oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. 
Yet, saints, their watch are keeping. The cry goes out, how long? And soon, the night of weeping will end with morning song. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her wars, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till with the vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Yet she, on earth as union, with God, the three in one. In the midst of it all, on this earth, as union with God, the three in one. And mystic, sweet communion with those whose rest is one. Oh, happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace that we, like them, the meek and lonely, on high may dwell with thee. I just want to end it this way. My friends, church, you are loved by God. Don't ever turn away from your first love. Let's pray together. Lord, there's all kinds of things that can grab our attention. We can be fascinated by things. We can be enamored by power. We could actually be attracted just, just by the idea of wealth. We could be sidetracked by any number of fleshly desires. But we know we were made for something beyond that. Even though so many of those things are beautiful, they are not you. So this week, Lord, as we, as we encounter the beauty in this world, as we encounter love among one another, as we see life in the best light it could possibly be seen, remind us it is just a taste of what life with you will be like. And as far as that's concerned, Lord, life will you, with you will make all those things pale in comparison to the love you have for us. So we pray, Lord, you will remind us of your love and let us love you in return that we, the church of Jesus Christ, may march throughout history in love with our husband and united on that final day when there's no more tears or sorrow or dying and everything will be made new. We look forward to that day, Lord, and we thank you for the hope. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.